so as we kind of keep keep on this uh, journey that we're going on here in first Peter where remember Paul uh, oh, there it is Peter is telling us Peter is telling us that you know he's instructing us he's kind of moved in this direction where he started to really challenge us in how we personally live how we choose to make decisions how we choose to live and act in certain ways and I really feel like these two verses this morning Peter really hits home and really wants to kind of magnify some things for us to really start to take ownership of how we live and breathe in this world that you know we talk about this resistant culture that we live in and that first off the first responsibility for us is how are we living how are we acting how are we representing the kingdom of God in this walk on earth and so I really believe in these two verses this morning Peter just doubles down Peter doubles down on reminding us of something and then instructing us on some other things. And so there's two things here this morning that I want us to see. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in this series is the fact that for us as Christians, we are now the outsiders. You know, as culture changes, as culture molds to kind of fit more of what some things we'll talk about this morning for us that we've been having to remind ourselves and remember that we are a people who are not welcome to the table of culture anymore as Christians because of what we represent, because of who we are, and because of what we do in worshiping a God, worshiping something outside of ourselves where a humanistic kind of cultural approach to humanity, to life is that you have everything you need within you and that everything that can be right is within you and that, that your life is dictated by your desires and all these things. And so you know, because our mindset and the way we as Christians approach all this is different than that, then it brings a lot of resistance. And like we said, it causes us to be those people who are unwelcome. Unwelcome to kind of the table, the cool kids table that we talked about. And so the two things this morning that I want us to see is this. The first thing is that we are unwelcome guests on the move. And then the second thing is this, is that we're unwelcome guests with something to prove. And so verse 11 as we start in our first point this morning, un unwelcome guests on the move, he says in verse 11, I love how he starts this verse where he says, and, and Peter and Paul both do this. Peter and Paul both do this. Whenever they're getting ready to kind of give some instruction, give some things that will cause you to live differently, act differently, look differently than the world around you, he is very clear. And I think this is some place where the church falls short sometimes is we want to give instruction, 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 to do, to do, to do. But we, we, we forget that everything we do as Christians is from a starting place, from a foundation at which we stand on and move from. And so what does Peter say here in verse 11? He says, beloved. Eight times between Peter's two epistles or two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he says the word beloved in communicating to the church eight times. And when we think about the word beloved, think of it kind of the, of the idea of being loved. And he, so he's telling them, you people that are being actively loved by God, you are God's people. You are his chosen people. We said at the very beginning of the series that you were chosen for this time to be in this time. So if you are a child of God, as we've even sung about this morning, that confidence that comes with knowing that you are a Christian. And then Peter says here, beloved, those being loved, he wants us to know this is the point at which we move from. That every resistance, that every struggle, that every decision I make as a parent for the sake of my family, for my kids, with my job, with the people I interact with, all of it starts at this po a point of beloved or being loved. 
And so he tells us, he continues on, and he says, kind of another reminder of some things we've talked about, he says, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as sojourners and exiles. And so I love, I love the progression of these words. I love the progression of these kind of identifications, uh, these identities that he kind of goes through. So he says, he says, first off, beloved, or those who are being loved, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And so what is he telling us? Remember, we talked about this a little bit before. This word sojourners means pilgrims or those traveling in a land that is not their own. And so he says sojourners and exiles. So I love that Peter not only tells us and reminds us that as Christians that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That our citizenship, the moment we have put our faith in Christ, have been born again, that our citizenship no longer rests in the world system or on earth, that our citizenship is in heaven. And so he's reminding us that we are not only pilgrims in a land that we aren't citizens of, but he also calls us exiles. And so what is an exile? An exile is someone banned from a nation or from their native country. And so, in this context, what is he saying? He says, not only, not only are you sojourners or pilgrims traveling in a land that is not your home, he says, but you are exiles, that when you have become a Christian, and listen, this isn't, this isn't the type of message that just gets people flocking to Christian faith, but there's a reason why the majority of this book is written to Christians, because God knows, God knew that the growth of the church isn't dependent on how he can tickle the ears of the people around him. He knew that the message and the growth of the kingdom of God was dependent on Christians being convinced about the truths of his word. And so he tells us here, he says that you as Christians, you are exiles. And so if, if an exile is someone banned from their native country, a country they used to live in, he says, not only are you traveling in a country you are no longer citizens of, you have literally been banned from this country you once belonged to. So he tells us as Christians living in this world, by association with Jesus, we are exiles. We are banned. The world doesn't want you. The world doesn't want you a part of it in light of the truth of God's word, in light of the, the convictions of what God has given us, in light of the direction that God has given us. And that's a very important part, part for us to understand and for us to remember. As he says that you are loved by God, that you are traveling in a land that is not your own, that you're aliens in this land, but also remember that they've exiled you. They don't want this anymore. Because you've been born again, you don't have a place in this world anymore. And I think if we can navigate in that mindset, and it reminds us that there's nothing, when we think about the world, and remember when we talk about the world, we're talking about a system, we're talking about kind of an idea of where we get gratification and value and identification from. And so when we speak against this idea of settling into the world, we're talking about not finding our value, not finding our identification, not finding our purpose in this world but finding all of that in Jesus, finding all of that in God and how he directs our, our lives. And this is important for us to establish as we kind of consider the movement into more of Peter's instruction for kind of on the ground navigation for us as Christians as we walk in obedience. Because if you see the words I urge you to, we can anticipate that there's about to be some instruction. But like I said, the way Peter does and the way Paul does, they both do this thing. If you read all of their letters, they both do this thing where they want to make sure they establish who you are in God first. And so Peter tells us, you're being loved, you're beloved, 
And not only that, but you're pilgrims. Remember, you're not citizens of this world that we live in right now, if you're a believer. And not only that, but you've been banned from the country you were once a part of. So the world doesn't want you in light of this. And so, continuing on, he begins to give us that instruction. So what is the instruction? He says, <clears throat> he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter gives some pretty strong instruction here when he's speaking to Christians. He's telling us something very specific about our walk and how we take steps in the world around us. He says, first off, to abstain. And this word to abstain can also be translated as a phrase to be to distance yourself, to put distance, to be distant. And then passions can also be translated lusts. But a lot of times we immediately associate lusts with sexual things. But lust is so much more than that. We can lust for all kinds of things that are welling up within us. You know, we can lust after food. We can lust after acceptance. We can lust after comfort. We can lust after complacency. We can lust after anything. Lust basically, basically are desires from our flesh, desires from within us that work in opposition to God's supply to us, God's support of us, God's provision to us. And so... What all of this is leading to, what Peter is telling us, he says, and you know, as he's reminding us that you are pilgrims in this land, that you have been banned from this country you were once a part of, this place at which you once lived spiritually, as he's instructing us not to partake of the riches of the land. Don't slow down. Don't settle in. Because what happens is, is that these desires for us as Christians, when we begin to settle in, you know, when he's writing to these people, remember that hate Christians. They hate Christians. They hate everything they are part of. They are blaming them for a fire in Rome. The Emperor Nero has pretty much turned the entire culture around them against Christians in this point. And so Peter is telling them, listen, in light of all the persecution, everything around you, and people telling you that the Christian faith is, is wrong, that that's not where you need to go, that's not what you need to do or what you need to believe in, they're telling, he's telling them, Listen, because of all that going on around you, if you begin to be driven, if you begin to be driven by these passions from within you, it will lead you into the riches of the land to settle into this nation. Try to become a part of this nation that you not only left to become citizens of heaven for, but you're also been banned by. And the only way for you to be reaccepted back into that culture is to give away all the goodness that God has given to you. To give away all the value of the things that God's kingdom provides for you. To begin to relinquish the riches of God and begin to partake of the riches of the world. And so he tells us, he says, don't settle in. He says, abstain from, distance yourself from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And, and I, I love how when Peter and Paul, both of them, very actively, speaking to two set, different sets of people. One is teaching to Gentiles and one is teaching to Jews who were kind of more religious people. I love how they give them kind of the, both the same idea, but they use a lot of this language of like, of a military language. 
Because I, need, I think he needs us to understand that this life that we live and these things within us that are drawing us to sin, that are drawing us away from God, these things are not passively uh, just uh, in our lives, but these things are actively waging war against us. You know, I don't know if you have or if you know someone who has dealt with addictions. Those addictions aren't passive. Those addictions are constantly there. Those addictions are constantly on their minds. Little tiny things remind them of their need, of their desire, of their draw towards something. That's because addictions are part of these desires from within our flesh that draw us to things for comfort, that draw us to things for satisfaction. And these things are not passive. But unfortunately for us, a lot of times in dealing with desires or lust, whether it be sexual, substance, whatever it might be, or just apathy. I think one of the, the, the worst things, especially living in the Bible Belt here in, in you know, southern U.S., is that we're apathetic. We're comfortable. We're complacent in our lives. And so we're apathetic in a sense of that we don't step into and live out these things that we believe as Christians actively. We just kind of passively participate in church or whatever it might be are serving or leading our families. And so, you know, what Peter is telling them and what he's telling us here, he's like, listen, the things that want to draw you away from God, those things are actively waging war against you. And so for you, for me, for us as Christians, that our responsibility is to step into this life in the same manner, waging war against those desires. Waging war against those things that want to draw us away from God because too often for us we passively approach and contemplate uh, the inner desires we are driven by. And for a lot of us, maybe we even normalize those desires, those things, those sinful things that draw us away from God. Listen, and it's not so much this do and don't do list. But it's this place in our lives where we have to think, are these things that we're actively participating in, are they building up our relationship with God or are they causing distance between us and God? James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Because remember, even as Christians, when we become Christians, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. But what is still there? Our flesh. That nature at which we entered into the relationship with, it's still present. You know, I, I say it all the time. Uh, Jake, uh, one day before I accepted Jesus as my Savior, was still the same Jake on day one of my walk with Jesus. And it took a lot of time to, to, to shuck off. And even today, there are still things that I wrestle with internally that have to constantly be actively fighting against or those things will well up. Those things will guide our desires. They'll guide our mindsets. They'll guide our decisions. They'll guide our actions. They'll guide the way we live in this world. And so Peter is trying to bring us back to this place where we understand that the enemy is from within us, that this enemy that is attacking our relationship with God isn't some external force. This, it isn't some external thing that's drawing us away from God. The problem is in us. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so you see there's instructions. We see Paul writing. We see James writing. There's instructions. Active participation for us to be taking active steps 
away from gratifying the flesh, gratifying these internal desires that drive us, that move us. I love this quote from D.L. Moody when he's talking about, he's kind of instructing that our battle, our real battle is not with people around us, but the passions within us. He said this, he says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. And I think a lot of it, when we're dealing with things within ourselves as Christians, when we're trying to live right, or we're trying to not do things that we know aren't right for us, that aren't right for our walks with our wives, maybe not right with how we lead our kids or how we represent the kingdom of God to the people around us. I think a lot of the issue is that we have to stop blaming outside influences, even though that it, it may be contributing Outside influences may be contributing to some of the sin that we partake in, but it's not the source of our sin. The source of our sin is us. The source of our problem is within us. You know, listen, there's not enough that us as people, as Christians, are going to do to change the way culture puts things around us. I mean, there's not going to be, you know, just thinking about the addicts. I mean, as someone who, who deals with addiction, like if they deal with alcohol addiction, there's not ever going to be less alcohol in the world. You know, they deal with drug addiction. There's never going to be less drug addiction in the world. Sex addiction. There's not going to be any less sexualized culture around us in the world. Those things are going to be present. So what do we do as people? What Peter is telling us. The problem isn't what's around you. The problem is you. The problem is what's within you. You know, that's where, you know, for us as people, we have to understand that our natural state, our natural, our flesh... The Bible says over and over and over again, especially in the book of Romans, that we are actively in our flesh, actively in opposition to God. That the Bible says in Romans that no one does good, that no one chooses God. I mean, Romans 3.13 through 18, he even kind of uses some really heavy language. He says, talking about people in our natural state, he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking, he says, this is our natural state. I mean, that's heavy language. I mean, that's not getting people riled up and excited. Like your throat is an open grave. The things that you say can spout death separate from the spirit of God within you because we're being driven by what? We're being driven by our internal desires. What makes me happy? What makes me fulfilled? What makes me feel valuable? That's a dangerous place to be. And that's what Paul, uh, Peter is telling us. He's telling us that these internal things within us are warring for our minds. And so for us, when we chalk up our desires to normal everyday problems and don't approach them day after day with a military mindset of defense and attack, we will find ourselves. We will find ourselves overrun and conquered mentally and spiritually by the enemy. And that's an easy place to be. I know for me in my life, there have been times when I have lackadaisically stepped into my spiritual walk. And listen, it is no time. It is much harder to fall into sin and apathy. It, I mean, it's much easier. It's much easier to fall into sin and apathy. It's so much easier to kind of be uh, carefree or care less about our relationship with God, how we approach God, how we enter into our, the space of, of, of loving our neighbors and telling people uh, about Jesus or having conversations about Jesus or, 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 or praying or whatever it might be. It is much harder to be doing those things than it is to fall into sin and to kind of give ourselves over to our internal desires. 
Because listen, it, it is very convenient and very easy. The world has made it very easy for us to gratify the desires of our flesh. Because that's what, when, when, he, when Paul, uh, Peter is telling us, he says, that's why you have to see yourselves as pilgrims or exiles because the moment we settle into the world and we begin to partake of the riches that the world offers us, and then what we're, we've done is we begin to grasp at those things that feed our desires, feed the desires of our flesh. Like we said, a lot of these things aren't going away. You know, the way people dress, you know, uh, you know, over and over again, I used to hear people complain about the way that, that ladies or men dressed and this and that. I'm like, listen, the problem isn't all of them. The problem is within us and our hearts that are sinful. That when we look at somebody, we immediately sexualize them. That's a lot of the problem. It's not us. It's the, I mean, it's not the world around us. That's how the world's going to act. That's how the world's going to live. The problem is within us. We have to be getting ourselves right. We have to be approaching God in this place where we've stopped gravitating towards these things that gratify the flesh but feed our spirit. Romans 8, 6-7, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Remember a lot of times when we talk about the word death, we're talking about separation. So he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death or separation, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot it says a life or a mindset that is lived feeding the flesh of our internal desires the things that Jake wants the things that make Jake happy when our goal in life is to satisfy ourselves, the Bible literally says that we can not submit to God because there's going to be conflict there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict based off of what God has either told us in His Word or the instruction that He gives for us that go against my personal desires. They can't, they can't cohabitate. My personal desires and the desires God has for my life cannot cohabitate in a sense of when they're being driven by my internal flesh because they will find conflict. And this is where for us as Christians, where we have a unique perspective on life, where most religions in the world would say that the problem is outside of you. That, and that for you as a person, that you need to be good enough to happen to the world around you. You need to be present in the world around you trying to fix it. Because the problem is out there. Where Christianity says the problem is inside of you. That we are born with a fleshly desire set for self-preservation, for self-centeredness, to satisfy ourselves. The problem is inside of us. And for us, that shouldn't lead us to a place of self-deprecation uh, or uh, self-depravity, but it should lead us to a place of awareness, of self-need, that something outside of us needs to change us. And for us in the Christian faith, that's what we believe Christ does. That we believe Jesus comes in and that Christ is enough for the brokenness inside of us. I truly believe that with all my heart. That any brokenness that's inside of me, only Christ can fix. Any desires, any sinful uh, addictions that we may have, even if they take time to fix, those things are fixed through Christ. Not because of any external abilities, not because of motivational speaking. For us, that's why for us as a church, I, I just want to present you with God's Word week after week after week. Listen, I could, I, we could preach more as motivational teachers and, and try to encourage you and tell you that you're great and you're good and everything inside of you is perfect and that every, every, everything you do is perfect. But, man, that's not what God's Word tells us. 
God's word tells us that we're broken. God's word tells us that we're faulty. God's word tells us that my internal desires would more often lead me to sin and selfishness than it would ever lead me to do good for my neighbor. Because if me, if I am at the center of my world, then my love for someone else or my love for God cannot cohabitate with that because it's going to find conflict. You know, that's why for us as Christians, I mean, and I don't say this like arrogantly, but I say this in a reality for us as Christians. And even as we kind of talked about most religions in the world, for us as Christians, I truly believe that we have the only foundational support for any true moral values in the world. Because if if God isn't God and God has not established a moral code, then what's the reason for any morality? Like, what's the reason for any goodness if there's not something beyond us? If, if, the only, if, if all of us, if the only reason any of us exist is to be happy, to be successful, to do what we want, then at what point does someone else's being happy and doing what they want become less important than yours, right? Because there's going to be this constant conflict. If there's not a central moral code that drives us, then at what point... At what point do these things not overlap? Because they're going to. You know, I mean, I hear the argument all the time. If, if there is not a God who has established a moral code, you know, and morality isn't something that we've created. Morality is something outside of us. And we all follow that moral code, but we all want to believe that that, you know, especially outside of the Christian faith or agnostic, atheistic type belief systems, that they would say that, that we as people are good enough to establish the moral code, but our ultimate goal is ourselves. You know, and so, well, if we are the ones that dictate the moral code, then why is, you know, if I believe that it's not wrong to harm someone because of my internal desires, but then someone else has internal desires that tells them it gives them satisfaction to see people tortured and murdered. Where, whose moral code is right? Who has decided? Who, where's the foundation? Because for us as Christians, we know. I have a foundation on why it's morally wrong to murder children in the womb, or I have a, I have a moral code that tells me why it's wrong to, 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 to rape or to, to take advantage of people. I have a moral code that tells me that because people are created in the image of God, and God loves people, and God doesn't want people to oppress other people or hate other people. But outside of Christianity, what is the moral code that drives us? There's nothing, because it's our own internal desires that come, it's the means to our end. And so Peter is telling us, listen, we can't live that way. We have to abstain, distance ourselves from these feelings. Because for us, and what we have to understand, is that these desires are like a military force searching out a way to infiltrate our joy, our peace, our usefulness in this world. And as we continue, and as it will only get worse, to navigate a culture that tells us that our feelings and our desires are what dictates our direction and our morality and our decisions. You know, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, is that if we're driven by feelings and desires and instincts, you know, because I don't argue that people think or desire certain things. Maybe it's in relationships, maybe it's in how we live, how we act, what we take in. I don't deny that people have desires. But I think what we have to remember is the thing that sets us apart from the animal kingdom is our ability to fight against our instincts, right? Because for me, I can decide within my mind that even if there's some type of instincts or desires within me, you know, whether it's some kind of hunger, some type of sexual thing or something like that, that drive me, 
that each and every one of us, what sets us apart, an, an animal, they, can, they, they function based off of their instincts, right? They function based off their instincts. They eat what they want to eat when they're hungry. They do what they want to do when they want to do it. Because they're being driven by their instincts. For us as human beings, we have a choice. We have critical thinking. We have a desire. We have a, uh, within ourselves something that sets us apart from the animal kingdom that we can say, even though I desire to do this, I can say no to it. I don't have to be driven by my internal desires. I can be driven by something outside of myself that reveals to me something better, something greater, a greater fulfillment. Because the animal kingdom, it turns out for us, if we live in that way, if that is the, the way at which our lives and our, our world functions is guided by our instincts, then ultimately we will be led into a food chain mentality, right? Where ultimately there's gonna be categories of people and places then that we will inevitably feed off of each other. In, a, in, in an inevitable reality of following our desires, our, 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 our wills, because ultimately, eventually, those things are going to clash. When my desires and another person's desires are at conflict, like we said, what's the moral standard to dictate our lives? Because listen, if it's simply... The argument for us and the goal for us is simply to be good to people and to follow our desires. That at one point do my desires and your desires clash. Then whose desires are right? They cannot coexist. But we know as Christians that God has given us a moral code. And that's what Peter, uh, Paul, Peter is telling us. He's telling us, listen, there, there are things, the, the things that guide you, the things that lead you, they are outside of you. Because, and this is the last thing this morning, not only are we unwelcome guests on the move, but because of all this, you know, we are unwelcome guests with something to prove. And so he begins to continue to give us that instruction where he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. For a lot of us, we've mostly convinced ourselves that the how and the, the way we live doesn't matter. That as long as we go to church or that we're decently good towards people, that we're okay. But remember, if we're not feeding the spirit, we're feeding the flesh. And if we're feeding the flesh and the flesh begins to drive us, then our desires will win out the day. Where David would pray in Psalms 37, 4, he would say, delight in the Lord. He would say, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. A lot of times people read that and say, well, if I delight in God, then God will give me the things that I desire. But that is absolutely not what that verse says. That verse is telling us that if we'll delight in the Lord, that he will feed us and change the desires within us so that our desires and God's desires for our lives will line up. That's what he's called us to delight in the Lord so that our desires will line up with God's desires for my life, for my family's life, for the lives of the people that I can influence around me. And so what God is calling us to do and what Peter is instructing here, these people that are navigating a culture that doesn't want them there as unwelcome guests, he says, listen, even though the world you're living in doesn't want you, you still have something to prove to those people. So the way you live, the way we act, the way we present ourselves to the world around us matters. God has called us to be living a certain way. God commands us to live in an honorable way. This word honorable means genuine or praiseworthy. Uh, to live this way among the people around us. It is a call for us as people to take responsibility for the way we live and remember that it matters. 
We cannot, just like we can't passively approach the sin within us and the desires within our flesh that drive us away from God, we cannot passively approach the responsibility we have to live a certain way in the world around us. He's called us to live in a way that's honorable. He's called us to live in a way that is pursuing holiness. That it matters that we pursue holiness. It matters that we try to do good. It matters that we praise God. It matters that we point our children to Jesus. It matters that we worship together. It matters that we participate in the local church. It matters that we step out of here and we watch the things we say. We, and listen, pursuing God in holiness is not perfection. I'm not calling us to perfection. Because I promise you right now, I, I would be calling you to a standard that I don't I can't live by because I'm faulty I'm broken and you know what sometimes my emotions get the best of me sometimes I say and do things that I don't mean that I'm ashamed of but you know what I serve a God that forgives and that God tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive and so what God what does God tell us to do he said the righteous will stumble seven times but you know what we'll get back up is what Proverbs tells us so get up and walk again that even if you failed, get up and walk again. Even if you've acted wrongly, get up and walk, uh, walk again. He says, ask for forgiveness and move. Second Corinthians 8, 21. He says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but listen, but also in the sight of man. The way we live matters. The way we act matters. And he says in verse 12, that our conduct would be honorable so that when they speak against you. You know, I love this idea. And Titus, uh, Paul would say to Titus when he's instructing a young pastor, he says in 2 uh, Titus 2, verses 7 through 8, he says, so Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Listen, that doesn't mean that they may not have something to say about us where we may fail. Because when the Bible, when the Bible defines evil, the Bible defines evil as a mindset that is not fearing of God or respecting of God. And how Jeremiah would say it is that the evil that you've done is building cisterns for yourself to collect your own water. Basically what it's saying is evil is getting to a point in our lives where we don't need God anymore. Where we don't need God anymore. Where we, we believe that we are all we need and we don't need God anymore. He says, that's evil. And so what he's called us to as Christians, he says to live your life in a way that doesn't show you don't need God anymore. Live your life in a way that shows you're dependent on God. Live your life in a way, and I believe we as churches can fall into this point where we've, we've communicated that we're, we've got it perfectly figured out and that we've got our lives all together. And so then you feel like, well, I, I, I have to be perfect when I come into church. That is not what Peter is telling us. But more so what Peter's telling us is to be a people that are constantly revealing that we're dependent on God. Because the moment, even as religious people, that we get to a point where we feel like we've got it figured out, is the moment we begin to slip into evil. Because we begin to not be dependent on God anymore because we believe that within us, that our own desires are enough. That if we're not constantly in dependence on God, we will eventually be feeding our own desires. And so he says, live in a certain way so that people can't say about you that this person doesn't depend on God. That this person doesn't follow God. That this person, you know, that should be a, a factor about us. And I think this is especially in navigating a culture. And that's why I believe Peter is saying this to them. He says, listen, people should be able to look at you. And people should be able to know, listen, not because your life is perfect, but because they know that you're a person that even on your faults and failures, you depend on God, you believe in God, and you live for God. 
Listen, living for God does not mean that you have a perfect report card of life. I believe a lot of us, we live life in this way where we believe that God is keeping a report card of our lives and the more we do wrong, the more we're failing, the more that it means like almost like in school. Well, if I fail in school, then there's no future for me, right? If I don't do well in this, then there's nothing ahead of me to look forward to. But listen, I am very thankful that God grades on a curve. And listen, that curve is not set by me, it's not set by you, but it's because God in heaven put on flesh, bearing the curve is set by our Savior Jesus, who took the worst of the worst that this world could be. He put it on himself, and he died on a cross, and he paid for it. He took it all away. The curve was set by Jesus, not because Jesus was sinful, but because Jesus took sinful man's shame and sin to the cross. And so God provided a way. And not only do we live in a certain way that people can't say evil about us, or that we don't depend on God, or that we don't believe in God, but in verse 12, he says this, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Listen, the way we live matters. The way we talk and act matters. The way we navigate this world, not only is it to be seen, but and he even tells us here, it can be a tool for evangelism. It can be a tool that leads people to Jesus by the way that we live. Philippians 2, 14 through 15. It's not the only way we lead people to Jesus, and it shouldn't be, but it is a way that we lead people to Jesus in how we live in dependence towards Him. Philippians 2, 14 through 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're meant to be seen. And this also speaks to earlier on when we talked about that for us as Christians, we're not called to completely escape the world. He's told us to be present in the world and in our presence be participants in communicating who God is and what God's done through our good acts, through the way that we live. And that is not only doing good to our neighbor, but it's about worshiping God and being present and visible, being Christians, followers of Jesus. Who people can look at our lives and say, you know what, those people, not that we're perfect and not that we should ever pretend to be, but those people depend on God. And because they depend on God, their life looks different than mine. And that makes me curious. How does that person have so much peace in the midst of all this struggle in their life? How does that person navigate all this stuff in their life and not just completely lose their mind? It's because we depend on something bigger than ourselves. But people will only know that if they see that lived out. Matthew 5, 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9, 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. I love that. I love that in that verse, that they will glorify God because of your submission. Your submission that comes from your confession. These are active, external things. He says they will see your life lived in submission to God. And not only that, but we will openly confess with our mouths the gospel of Jesus. 
And this is where for us, I hope that we can be different than the modern church today, where the modern church today would believe that the only way, that the best way for the gospel to be spread is just by doing good to people and that you don't have to actively speak or communicate the gospel of Jesus to people. But that's not the case. He tells us that we need to be confident enough to actively communicate this gospel that we say we believe in. First off, where it starts most of all is within this community of this discipleship program God has given us, and that's our families. That if we have kids, that is a a built-in discipleship program. That is number one. Listen, I love this church, but my number one responsibility is my discipleship to my family. Your number one responsibility is discipleship to your family. And that overflows into what we do here. But we can't ever neglect that. We can't neglect our responsibility as parents to disciple our children. Because if we're not discipling them, something's discipling them. No one is not being discipled. Everybody's being discipled by something. We're either being discipled by something outside of ourselves in God and the gospel, or we're being discipled by what our internal desires lead us to. Galatians 1, 23-24 says, They only were hearing it said, He, and talking about Paul, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith He once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. And I love how when we talk about living our lives out in front of people, maybe we think to ourselves, and listen, I think this, there's a lot of people here that have known me for a really long time. And there's a lot of things I think back on this past year was our 15-year class reunion. And I'll be honest with you, I think back to some of the stupidity that I lived in 15 years ago, and I'm ashamed. But what I can also do is I can look back on that and not be held back by the shame or guilt of that, but I can say, man, thank God. Thank God for change, Right? Thank God for God's patience in my life that, you know what, in the last, last 15 years, I have been, still been stupid more times than not. I've still done stupid things, said stupid things, acted in stupid ways. But God has been patient with me. And God is patient with you. And God calls us to continuously move in this direction so that, so that our past doesn't have to be this shameful scar that we hold on to, but our past can be this thing that is part of us, part of our progress, a tool that magnifies God's goodness. Paul was the person dragging Christians out of homes and murdering and, and stood by at the murder of Stephen. And as he's doing the work of, of the faith, Paul said, the people are saying, hey, isn't this a guy that used to kill us? They are looking at his past, referencing his past. And it goes immediately to this point where it says that they glorified God because of me, not because of how, how great Paul was, but about how great God was in using Paul. That's the people God's called us to be. Listen, God has not called you to be perfect parents. God has not called you to be perfect people. God has called you to be a people who are confidently pursuing Him in holiness and, 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 and taking steps towards perfection. That we will never take perfect steps, but steps towards perfection to reveal God's goodness so that even in our faulty state, God could shine a light on Himself by taking a broken sinner like me, a broken sinner like you, and saying, look at God's goodness, that God would take this goober like me. That, you know, I just, we were looking at pictures the other day and I thought to myself, good Lord Almighty, who is this dude? Like, what was he doing? What was he thinking? We thought we were so cool back then, right? Just doing what we do. But man, thank God for his redemption and his goodness. And listen, that we grow and we mold. And, you know, it's all part of this process that we live in in every point of our lives. The best that we've done and the worst that we've done are a part of our growth. 
They're a part of God's goodness in our lives. And by the end of our life, listen, and it's all a process. Listen, it's all a process. And, and my prayer is at the end of my process that I'll be able to stand before a holy God and God will say, listen, there's a lot of things you did wrong. But you know what? You finished the race. Listen, I've said this a lot. It's not so much about how we start this race with God. It's about how we finish. That we just keep pursuing Him. That we keep drawing people to Him. We keep telling our families that this is the most valuable thing in our lives is our relationship with God. Because when all things change and when everything around us falls apart, this will be the only thing left. You know, in a world where COVID and cultural rifts and all these things are present, a lot of people have lost a lot of things. But the thing that never changes is who God is and what God does for His people. And that's what God wants us to understand. So listen, we're going to have an extension of our time of worship here at the end. I'm going to ask the, uh, the guy, uh, the guys, Landon and Tracy are the only two, uh, to come up and to join me this morning as we kind of worship. We just finish out with a moment of worship. But for us, I want us to understand and remember this as we finish up. That the way we live speaks loudly about the God we serve. That the way we live speaks loudly about the God we serve. That living honorably among the people around us isn't an invitation to perfection, but it's an instruction on the reality that our imprint on the world, how no matter who we are or what we've done, that God can use our best attempts. God uses our best attempts at obediently seeking Him as a tool in the lives of our families, in the lives of our workplace, in the lives of our church. Because he tells us in John 14, 23, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word. Listen, he didn't say that you will perfect my word, but you will keep my word. You will step in line with my word. You will do your best to take steps of obedience. And so for, for us, where does it begin? And then I'll be done. For all of us, whether we're Christian, whether we're here and we're not, Christian here this morning, then it's this, that we begin again every day. If we're not a believer here this morning, it's this, recognizing our need, repenting of where we have fallen short of obeying God's commands in our lives. Before we can take active steps of obedience, we've got to be obedient to the very first thing that God calls us to, and that's repentance. That's understanding that we've fallen short. And listen, that's not the end of the road, that's the beginning. It's the beginning of steps of obedience. Is it acknowledging where we've fallen the second thing is this, and this is a, a, a valuable thing for us, that if we have never been scripturally baptized as a Christian, that if maybe we've put our faith in Jesus and, and, and have been confident in his work for us on the cross, but have never taken active obedient steps of baptism in a public proclamation of our allegiance and intentions of obedience to God, then we do that. Listen, it's a religious work, but not all religious work is bad, and it doesn't have to be just for religion's sake. There's something very beautiful about baptism. There's something very beautiful about being dunked in ice cold water in front of a bunch of people that we barely know to communicate that I trust in Jesus. That the old me has been buried in the grave with Jesus and the new me is risen and clean, ready to walk in this newness of life. And then as we continue on through this word that we would through this world that we would feed our spirit. That we would feed our spirit. That we would be in God's word. That we would present in worship, that we would come to this place that we've set apart to worship together, and that we would talk about the Bible, we would talk uh, to each other, that we would encourage each other, that we would join together in this good walk that God's given us. Listen, feed 
church, could we this morning stand with me as we pray together, as we seek God today, and as we just kind of end out with a time of worship together, that we would just take this moment just to acknowledge who God is. Maybe we repent, maybe we pray and ask God, God, forgive us, or maybe we acknowledge acknowledge God this morning. God, I trust you. I believe in you in a way that I never have before. God, I'm just, I just need you today. Help me to have confidence to take these steps that you've called me to. Help me to have direction. What is step one for me? Where do I begin? Where do I start? Where does it end? So let us bow our heads this morning. We'll pray together and then we'll worship God. We thank you for today. God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for the grace that you've imparted to us, God. Lord, I thank you that the life you've called us to is not a life based off of our perfect steps, but God, the life you've called us to is a life of obedience depending on your perfect life. God, that in all our brokenness, in all our weakness, God, that you've called us to pursue you. God, help us to see you. Help us to depend on you. God, help us to love you in a way that you deserve, in a way that leads, guides, and directs us in the past that you've called us to. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, let us sing together this morning.